The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. The passage for this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 3. Verses 1 through 6, if you're reading from the Black Pew Bible in front of you, that can be found on page 942. Please stand when you're ready to read God's Word. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. This is the word of the Lord. I just want to say real quick here, uh, I really do hope that you um, consider um, participating in, um, praying for, attending that Bites on the Boulevard event that we have coming up. Um, It really was just born out of three, four, five years ago. We're just like, what can we do to be um, just a pretty public witness in our in our community and um, to the point where they've just said you know thank you so much for not only bringing just water and being simple in that way but also providing something for the children that are there um, there's activities for the little ones that aren't provided by anyone else and it's just been repeatedly expressed on behalf of the um, the board driving the event that they're just thankful for for our participation but what I would pay ask you to pray for and consider is this. It is true what Tommy said, like out of every 10 people or so that show up just wanting a a bottle of water, that's what they want. They just want a bottle of water. Um, But about one out of every 10 person that does show up there, uh, they they really do linger and they're asking a question. Um, They want to know more about the church or they'll ask a spiritual question or something along those lines. And this isn't always people who are Jesus people, so to speak. And so part of it is just learning that as an everyday disciple, we have an opportunity to bear witness to Christ by just sort of being quiet, listening, asking good questions, speaking a good word for Christ, asking somebody, can I pray for you? I've had opportunities to actually be able to explain key elements of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to that one person who just sort of like didn't grab the water and just leave. And we can assume that if it's true, a la John 5 and 6, that God is in the business of drawing sinners unto himself and crosses paths with his Jesus people so we can bear witness to them that that one-tenth, that one person out of ten isn't just there by happenstance. And so it just becomes yet another opportunity to show up and bear witness for Jesus by meeting practical needs, yes, 
cool bottle of water on a hot day, or also meeting the spiritual needs by just listening, talking, asking questions, and making ourselves available. So I would highly, highly, highly encourage you to consider coming, loving, serving, having fun, laughing, eating good food, drinking good drink, but also just coming with sort of your spiritual radar tuned into the reality that God is drawing people to himself, and he can do it through a food truck rally over on the corner of South Grand and MacArthur, okay? So that's all I've got to say about that. So, sermon titled this morning is Superior Faithfulness. Superior Faithfulness. Looking at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Superior Faithfulness. The main idea that the author wants us to consider is this. He wants us to consider the superior faithfulness of Jesus Christ. As you heard Tommy reading, he's going to make a comparison and a contrast to faithful Moses. But he's going to help us to see that compared to faithful Moses, there is a superior faithfulness to be found in King Jesus. And that actually means something for you and me in our everyday lives as everyday disciples. So let's pray. Let's ask for the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do, which is to empower the preaching of his word so that we'd walk away seeing what we need to see from the scriptures. And then we will dive into our text. Okay, so let's pray for these things. Father, my aim this morning is to come and to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to use words to do this, but my hope and my aim is that this time would just not be um, an exhibit of just words only, but that it would be pointing to the superior faithfulness of Jesus, superior Jesus in and of himself. That it would be my words calling us to consider Jesus and the gospel that Jesus is the Savior who loves to save sinners. And that this would be a time marked by power and the Holy Spirit in such a way that we would leave with the full conviction that I am called to consider Jesus. He is the superior one, superior in his faithfulness, superior in his ability to hold on to me as we are called to walk and hold fast our confidence and hope in him. Lord, I think there's going to be probably some hard things that we have to hear this morning. And so my hope is that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a mind that truly understands what is being said. It's in the name of King Jesus I pray these things. Amen. Well, we are continuing our march most definitely through this letter written to a group of Jewish Christians, the letter known as Hebrews. And what we're continually discovering is that the author is a man of awe theme, a singular theme. He's not shooting all over the place. This isn't a buckshot letter that's just sort of blasting all over the place. He's got a a rifle shot theme. He is about one thing, and that one thing he is about is Jesus Christ and his superiority above all things, his absolute and unquestioned superiority. So far, he's shown us that he's superior to the prophets, having spoken through God, having spoken through Jesus. Finally, he has shown us that He is better than the angels, and now he's going to confirm before these suffering Christians that Jesus is better than Moses. Now, as we've stated several times, when the going gets tough in the Christian life, we are tempted and prone to try to hit the eject button, to try to do what we can do to escape suffering trials, difficulties, persecutions, hardships, whatever it might be. 
And for these Jewish Christians whom the author is writing to, we've said over and over again now that persecution for their faith in Christ is something they are experiencing. Persecution for their faith in Jesus, though, had some of these professing Christians wondering if escape from their profession of faith in Christ and escape back to their former Judaism, back to the prophets, back to the angels, back to the people like Moses. Some of them were wondering, is it worth avoiding the suffering to eject Jesus and go back to what we once knew? You see, the author knows how we can be easily distracted from Jesus and prone to fix our eyes on anything but him, especially when suffering comes our way. Therefore, he firmly declares to these group of professing Christians, no, it is not worth it for you to hit the eject button and to bail on the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls them instead to hold fast to their confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to hold fast to it, firm to the end. Now, in the ebb and the flow of this letter that we are working through, we are sitting on the doorstep of the next major warning that he's going to give to these believers. Remember, this whole letter we argued in the very first sermon is really sort of like a written sermon. And the author is mixing together two realities. He's constantly encouraging them to press forward in the Lord Jesus Christ, to hold firm to their confidence and the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ in which they boast. But he also mixes this with very real warnings on what will happen, what could happen if you neglect the great salvation found in the Lord Jesus Christ and begin to drift. What you need to know is we've already touched on one warning in Hebrews 2 when Pastor Tom preached a couple of weeks ago and we're sitting now right on the doorstep of probably one of the biggest warnings that's going to actually take up all of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4. But before the author gets into the meat of that warning, he wants us to first consider the superior faithfulness of Jesus before we go into the content and the context of this warning. He wants us to see that Jesus is superior in his faithfulness. Jesus who? Jesus who is the apostle and high priest of our confession. So first, the author calls us to consider Jesus. That is point number one. It's buried right there in verse one of chapter three. Look at what he writes in verse one to these beleaguered believers suffering persecution. He says this, therefore, holy brothers... That is, you who share in a heavenly calling, here's the command, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, if you remember that in the first two chapters, we have learned some incredibly precious truths concerning Jesus, our merciful and faithful high priest. 
And to help ensure that we don't let those truths slip from our attention, the author beckons his audience to come and consider Jesus. Remember, the author is a one-theme man, Jesus above all things, Jesus better than all things. So it's not like he's saying, listen, I know I've just spent two chapters laying out how Jesus is better in all things, so let's take these things, set them over here on the corner shelf, and come back and move on to something else. He's constantly saying, no, we cannot move beyond one and two. We can't move beyond chapters 1 and 2. So he comes at us in chapter 3, verse 1 with, Therefore, therefore, because of all of these things here, let us consider Jesus. Don't let this get shoved to the wayside. Let this become the very lens by which we continually march through the exhortations, the encouragements. Let 1 and 2 continually be the lens by which we go forward through the warnings that he's going to give us. This is what he wants us to do. This is what he wanted his original audience to do. Consider Jesus. Now, who is his audience? Notice how he describes his audience in verse 1. It is the holy brothers. And if you know your Greek well enough to know, that's not just the men he's talking to. That's actually the word brothers and sisters in Christ. Holy brothers, holy sisters in Christ who share in a heavenly calling. You see, in Christ, this is how God sees them, holy brothers, holy sisters, who share in a heavenly calling. And for any here this morning who are likewise in Christ, this is how God sees you, holy in him, as partakers who share in a calling that is heavenly. So he sees you as holy, By God's grace, you have been chosen. By God's grace, you've been set apart for him. Once you were in sin and thus unrighteous before a holy God, but now you have been washed. Now you have been sanctified. Now you have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And this Holy Spirit is molding you and conforming you to the Holy God who saved you and adopted you into his family. As we said in our last sermon series, when we are born again, we are born again into a new family. A Jesus family. Where Jesus, our older brother, welcomes all of his fellow holy brothers and sisters into this family because they're trusting and resting in him on what he accomplished in the cross to fold us into the family of God. We are members of the household of God because of what our elder brother, Jesus, accomplished on the cross. And now for all who come to him, we can find entrance into the household of God. That language, that familial language is very familiar language that the Bible uses to describe Christians as members in the household of God. You see, to know, listen, to know that I am part of a Jesus family where everyone in the family not only shares in a calling that proceeds from heaven, but shares in a calling that also leads us to heaven, this is meant to prevent us from downplaying the significance of gathering with our Jesus family. To neglect the significance of gathering is to downplay the significance of sharing. Sharing in what? Sharing in that 
heavenly calling that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. So when you're sitting here on a Sunday morning, what you're meant to do is sort of go through this train of thought, all of verse 1, Hebrews chapter 3. If you can say, I have turned from sin and turned to Christ, and I am now in Christ by grace through faith, what you can say is this, I am a brother or sister, I am a member in the household of God. Not only am I a member in the household of God, I have been made holy, washed clean, justified, sanctified, purified before a holy God, and that is why I can be a member in his household. So what you're meant to do is sort of tap into this vertical reality of, yes, this is who, this is who I am now. I am now a holy brother, a holy sister. And then what you're supposed to do is sort of glance left and glance right and realize, though, that this reality that describes me as a holy brother, holy sister, isn't something that I just simply partake of. I share in this very same calling with you, and with you, and with you, and with you, and with you. And it's all of these individual vertical realities of the Father calling people to himself, washing them clean in the blood of Christ, pulling them into the family, that then you start to realize there's a bunch of individual peoples who can say this is true of me because we all share in this heavenly calling. And so what we don't want to do is to somehow neglect the significance of gathering on a Sunday morning because when we gather on a Sunday morning, that gathering reminds us that this calling I share in is bigger than me. Two hours on a Sunday morning can be used by God in such a way to remind you and disabuse you of the notion of individualistic Christianity. We are prone to say, Jesus, me, and no one else. I'm just going to do Jesus and Jesus and me. Gathering on a Sunday reminds you that actually the Jesus, me movement is not biblical. Because while it is true, Jesus and you might have a proper relationship now by grace through faith, gathering on a Sunday morning reminds you that it's not just you who shares in that heavenly calling. There's a whole bunch of other people who share in that heavenly calling. Sunday morning, listen, Sunday morning is not the end-all, be-all of our Christian existence. Don't hear me say this. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that the sole point of your Christian existence is to carve out two hours out of your week to show up on a Sunday morning. Some churches will implicitly or explicitly speak like this, saying the sole point is for you to get up and get here. I don't care what you do the rest of the week. The sole point is for you to invite your friends here. The sole point is to be about this, these two doors, these four walls, get folks in, pull them in. Try to get them to come to this. Do all your stuff here. Ministry happens here. Teaching happens. All the, everything is like here-centered. And so what they will say is sort of implicit. Like your gathering and the sharing can only take place here. We're not saying that. Others will let the pendulum swing the other way and say, it doesn't matter if you show up here. You can just be a you and Jesus kind of solo Christian. And you can be out there and you can have nothing to do with the gathering of those who share in a heavenly calling. And what we're saying is it's not either or, it's both and. 
What we're saying is to be a holy brother, a holy sister who shares in a heavenly calling, we are helped in considering Jesus by remembering we gather on a Sunday morning so we can look left and look right and see, you know what, I do share in something that's bigger than me. The Jesus family isn't just a bunch of uniform Jonathan Davises, it's a unity of complete diversity in the way we think and look and act and speak. Jesus is in the business of pulling people into himself, building a family that is completely mind-boggling when you begin to just look at it and understand it, but then what you do is you walk out of these two hours into the next six days and 22 hours recognizing that I am called to go and live in those areas and spaces and rhythms as well. That is the ebb and flow that we are looking for. Not the end-all, be-all of our Christian existence, but to ignore gathering with your Jesus family altogether. To ignore gathering with your Jesus family altogether is to miss this fact. Christians belong together. Christians belong together. 2020 presented us some challenges to this. Zoom Live-streamed church was a godsend, but it is not this. There is something supernatural and spiritually achieved when a Christian in flesh and blood stands next to a Christian flesh and blood and is able to hear that person singing, to hear that person confessing, to hear that person tapping into the assurance of the Lord Jesus Christ, remembering the gospel, to be able to see that person weep, to see that person to be able to pray, to see that person be able to confess, to see that person take notes and write things down. There's something designed innately into the DNA of the Jesus family where we as Christians were designed by God to belong together. Why? Because we share in a heavenly calling. And when we rub shoulders with fellow Jesus DNAers, there is just something that God has designed into this gathering for two hours on a Sunday morning that is meant to fan into flame a reality of, I am refueled now to go out into the next six days and 22 hours so that I can then come back next week for these two hours rubbing shoulders again. It's the ebb and flow of gathering and scattering that we are to be about. So... What are these holy brothers, holy sisters called to do? Consider Jesus. That's the answer. Consider Jesus. Jesus who? The apostle and high priest of our confession. What you need to know is that when the original audience, Jewish Christians, would have heard the author talk about the apostle and high priest, their minds would have drifted to two people in particular. They would have drifted to a man named Moses and a man named Aaron. Moses is Judaism's apostle because the word apostle in its most basic meaning just means someone who is sent. So if you were to talk to a Jew and say, who is the, the apostle of Judaism? They'd be like, ah, surely it's Moses. Moses is the man. Moses was sent by God to be the lawgiver. Well, who was the high priest? Like the high priest, like the first one who got the whole, the whole thing going. They'd be like, well, it's, it's Aaron. Now, Aaron doesn't show up here. Aaron's going to show up later in chapter 7. But they would have said, ah, Aaron, he's the guy who's, who's all about the high priest. He was the appointed mediator between the people and God. So for the author then to call Jesus 
the apostle and high priest. What he is saying is that what Moses and Aaron were ultimately about, it uniquely comes together and converges in awe, singular person. That stuff, the apostle nature of Moses, the high priest nature of Aaron, goes forward and points beyond themselves and converges in a single person, Jesus Christ. Jesus was an apostle before his disciples were. Jesus said of himself, John 20, verse 21, as the Father has sent me. Remember, an apostle just means someone who was sent. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus is our apostle, the apostle. And as high priest, we've learned that Jesus is merciful and faithful to bring us to God, as we saw last week, making propitiation for our sins. This Jesus is the object of our confession, says the author. Therefore, consider him. Consider him. Your confession as a Christian is not a loose confession. And what I mean by that, your confession as a Christian has a very, very direct object. Jesus, the apostle and high priest. Therefore, don't pay him lip service, says the author. Don't merely give him an occasional or a glancing thought. To make a habit of not considering Jesus is a surefire way to loosen and cut your anchor from him and to begin to drift. So instead, consider Jesus. Involve Jesus in your mind. Think continually upon Jesus. Ponder Jesus. Meditate upon Jesus. Behold him by faith. Occupy your heart with him. Relish Jesus. Appreciate Jesus. Love Jesus. Serve Jesus. Glorify Jesus with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. These are all various facets of the gem known as considering Jesus. Because the moment we begin to not consider Jesus as much, your mind isn't going to go into neutral. Your mind will drift to something else and begin to consider other things as more important than Jesus. So he's saying actively set your mind, heart, soul, strength on Jesus. Involve Jesus because the moment you do, you're going to begin to cut the ties that keep you anchored to him and you will begin to drift. Ever found yourself just sort of drifting from your confession of faith that Jesus is better? Like, have you ever just felt your heart being tugged and pulled in certain times where you're like, I sort of feel it in my bones right now. Like, I am truly beginning to be tempted to believe X is better than Jesus. There's a really good chance that is going on in your life because the active consideration of Jesus is not taking place in your life. Now, the question might arise in the midst of the original audience. Yeah, 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 okay, okay. Yeah, Moses, apostle, Aaron, high priest. Yeah, you've, you've said Jesus is like the better superior fulfillment, the convergence of, of these two. Okay, I, I guess you're, you're right, author. But surely there is this measure of them going, but, but, but is he really, is he really better? Like, is he really superior than Moses, Aaron? Is he really superior as the apostle and the high priest? Is he really greater than these two? And I think knowing his audience as well as he does, knowing that this is a completely possible question, the author says, yes, he really is greater. So he says, let me make a comparison and a contrast. And he begins by looking to Moses, the faithful servant. 
Look at verse 2. Jesus was faithful, there it is, faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also, here it is, faithful in all God's house. Scan your finger down a couple of verses to verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. So to a first century Jew, it would be hard to find a figure who ranked higher in your mind than Moses. Like, right, if you could manifest Marty McFly, hop in your DeLorean, shoot back into the Old Testament, stand in front of a first century Jew and say, name it, number one. Like, who's the go-to guy? Moses. That would be the answer. After all, Moses truly was faithful in all God's house. You find that in Numbers chapter 12. It was God who providentially spared Moses as a baby, Exodus 2. God spoke to Moses in the flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, Exodus 3. Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, Exodus 12. He gave the law on Mount Sinai, Exodus 20. Under Moses, the tabernacle was built and the whole system of worship was set up, chapter 26 in the book of Exodus and several chapters afterwards. God, says the author, even used Moses to testify to that which would be said in the future and done in the future. It's like, okay, well, where do you see that at? Deuteronomy 18, it was Moses who spoke a messianic prophecy contrasting himself against the Christ to come when Moses said, the Lord, Yahweh, your God, he's talking to the people, Moses is talking to the people, he says, the Lord, your God, is going to raise up for you a prophet like me, he says. So God's going to do something greater and bigger than someone beyond me. And he's going to raise this prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. So even back in the fifth book of the Old Testament, Moses is saying there's something shooting way beyond me. And when this guy shows up, you must, you need to pay attention to him. Furthermore, as we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 11, listen, it was the Christ in whom Moses himself was trusting. And most of us know our Old Testaments enough to know, like, do we ever even see Jesus show up? In the Old Testament, the answer is yes. But the author of Hebrews says Moses considered the reproach of Christ. Moses, like first five books of the Bible, Moses considered Christ. New Testament Christ, yes. His eyes were casting forward and considered the reproach of Christ greater than the treasure of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Truly, the great thing about Moses was his faithfulness in all God's house as a servant. And as such, Moses stands as a pillar of faithfulness that these men and women would have looked up to, but then also been tempted to go back to when the going got tough in the Christian walk. Now, in saying these things, the author is not downplaying the faithfulness of Moses. What you should not hear the author doing is like, Moses, he's not doing that. But what he is saying is that compared, listen, compared to the faithfulness of Jesus, Jesus is on another level altogether. In matters of faithfulness and where our confidence and hope ought to land, it must land on, third point, Jesus, the faithful son. Look at verse 2 again. Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him. Verse 3, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. 
as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Parenthesis, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Verse 6, summation, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So the question is, was Moses faithful? Author, was Moses faithful? Yes, absolutely faithful. But just as faithful to the role given to him was the man, Jesus Christ. You see, faithfulness is a supreme characteristic of the Lord Jesus. Amen? Are you thankful that Jesus is superior in his faithfulness? That when he says something, it gets done. He holds to his promises. They are yes and amen in him. Our confidence rests in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. God the Father appointed him to the work of salvation, and in every respect the Son proved faithful, having accomplished the work that the Father gave him to do, John 17. And just last week, remember, we identified the very heart of Jesus. He is the high priest who is merciful and faithful. Yet we must say that there's a difference between faithful Moses and faithful Jesus. 4, verse 3 Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Why? Says the author, well, for the same reason that the builder of a house has much more glory than the house itself. As some of you know, before Jesus subpoenaed me um, out of the world of architecture and into pastoral ministry, that's, that's what I was doing. I was studying to become a licensed architect. And like most aspiring architects, one person quickly becomes your hero, and that is Frank Lloyd Wright. Now, as you know, or maybe you don't know, Springfield is blessed to have one of the better Wright design homes right downtown in our city. If you go to the corner of Lawrence and Forth, you will find the Dana Thomas house one of the actual premier Frank Lloyd Wright houses buried right in the middle of our town. Side note, one, if you haven't seen it, you're doing yourself a giant disservice. Two, upon that note, go and see it sometime soon, okay? Now, what you need to know is that that house is just stinking beautiful, absolutely beautiful. You go into that house the layers to that house, the multiple workings of high space to low space, the intricate woodwork, the way that he just designed the flow of that home, the way the rhythm of that house was designed, the glass carvings, the, the stuck, everything in that house is designed to be beautiful and to draw something out of you. In a sense, when you're standing on the threshold to the Dana Thomas house and you begin to walk in, your heart sort of stirs with honor. Like, wow, like this thing, this house is really, really good. And I've been there multiple times and my heart has yet to go, ooh, this is really lame. Beauty of the design of the house stirs within me and draws out a heart that wants to honor this thing that's in front of me. But here's what consistently happens whenever I leave that house. I leave that house and go, I cannot believe that this physical brick and mortar and wood and stucco space came out of the brain of a builder. Like I am standing in a place 
that was first manifested and designed in the builder. He designed this house. He built this house in his head way before some worker came and put nail to wood and brick and mortar together. And so I see the house. Honor is given to the house, but then the honor goes to the much more glory of man. There is something in the builder, the designer, the architect that is magnificent. And in that sense, what my heart is doing is going house that was built, honor, but the builder is going to get much more glory than just merely the house itself. And this very idea, says the author, goes the same for the house of God's people. Whether you're an earthly architect or you are the heavenly one, every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God, he says in verse 4. So when it comes to the household of God, that is when it comes to God's redeemed people, what you need to know, audience, is that Moses was only part of the house while Christ, the Son of God, is the one who has built the house. Moses was in the house as part of God's people, but Jesus is over the house. Moses was described as a servant of God's house, but Jesus is God's son. Using the language of building and family, the contrast is made as clear as the author can possibly make it. Faithful Jesus is superior to faithful Moses. Because there is all the difference in the world between being a servant and a son, and there's all the difference in the world as being in a house contrasted to over a house. Therefore, rejoice, says the author. For all those who have been saved by grace through faith, that is, all who have been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, all who have been born again to a living hope, guess what? You are a member of the household of God built by the architect of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6. Indeed, he says, we are his house. We are his house. So the question then becomes for you and me as we land the plane is this. How can I know if I am part of the house? The house built on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ, rooted and grounded in him. How can I know that I'm a part of this house? The answer is found in the very last phrase of verse 6. You can know you are a part of the household of God if, if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Now, it's important to know that this verse is a hinge verse that is going to swing us wide into the warning that's going to take up the rest of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4. In other words, what I'm about to say, there is a lot more to come on this thought that the author is going to tease out. But here's what we can say right now is this, and I need you to pay attention. Listen, how can I know if I'm a part of this house? How can I know I am a true, genuine member of the Jesus family? a genuine brother and sister in the household of God, how can I know that I'm a part of this house? I can know that I am a member in God's household if I show evidence in my life of that membership. That is what verse 6 is saying. And the evidence, says verse 6, 
that someone who professes to be a true member of God's family is in fact a true member of God's family is this. They will show their true membership in God's family by continuing, enduring, and holding fast to the confidence of their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ no matter what comes. No matter what comes. We are God's house, verse 6. Two letters, one word, huge implication. If, if we hold on to our confidence and the hope in which we boast. You see, every one of us knows somebody who at one time professed to be a true member in the household of God. Showed up on Sunday mornings, were all about CG, prayed the prayers, read their Bible, did the stuff, or at the collegiate, the collegiate ministry, showed up at the local workplace, Bible study, whatever it might be. Yet over time, guess what? Their words and their actions gave evidence that they no longer cared to continue. They no longer cared to endure. They no longer cared to hold fast to their confidence and hope. They were once willing to admit readily and vigorously. There was no longer a care to be controlled by the love of Christ, nor joyfully heed the call to consider Jesus. And in due time, their faith tapered, dissipated, and proved to be a temporary thing. If, if we hold fast, says the author, we are his house. Hold fast to what? That's the question I hope you're asking yourself. If we hold fast, we're in the house. Hold, 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 hold fast to what should be the question in your mind. Hold fast in complete dependence upon the Lord. Hold fast to our confidence in God. Hold fast to the confidence in the work of Christ on the cross. Hold fast to our confidence in the gospel. Hold fast to our confidence in the Spirit's power to transform. Hold fast that I will persevere to the end for the confident hope in which I boast rests in the superior faithfulness of Jesus. And it's Jesus who began a good work in me. He will be the same Jesus who brings it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. So while Moses was faithful, guess what? Faithful Moses can't help us with this. And that is the author's point. Moses faithful, yes. But should our hope for enduring and continuing and holding fast in the faith rest in a Moses? Absolutely not. We need someone who is superior in their faithfulness to lay hold of us as we then, empowered by that, lay hold of him to continue and finally persevere firm to the end. Moses was faithful, but ultimately Moses cannot help us. That's to say no other human being can help us to hold fast. The only one who can help us to hold fast is Jesus himself. You see, there aren't too many of us being tempted to lay our confidence and our hope in Moses, yeah? Some of you guys are like, man, this has been a really lame sermon so far. Why? Because I'm not over here tempted to do anything with Moses. 
Like, that's what you're thinking right now. Man, this has been 40 minutes of just like, wow, an epic waste of time. Who cares about Moses? But guess what Moses is? He's another human being. And have you ever been tempted to maybe not place your confidence and hope in the midst of suffering in Moses? Probably not. But have you ever been tempted to place your hope and confidence in someone not Jesus? Yes. Then Hebrews 3, 1 through 6 is exactly the verses that you need. You see, there aren't too many of us here, I dare say none of us, who are tempted to lay our confidence and hope in Moses. But there are a lot of us who are tempted every day to lay our confidence and hope in someone, not Jesus. Moses, not Jesus. For you, it may not be Moses. Maybe for you, it is your husband. Maybe for you, it's your wife. Maybe for you, it's your parent. Maybe for you, it's your child. Maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a fiance, maybe it's a boyfriend, maybe it's a girlfriend. For these Jewish Christians, this person they were tempted to lay their confidence and hope in was Moses, but for us it can be a whole host of things. Every one of us here this morning has a tendency in our heart to place our confidence and hope in a pseudo-savior thinking this person who's not Jesus will save us and satisfy us more than the Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes? Do we feel this temptation at times? Not Moses, But to say, if I am going to get out of this suffering, this trial, this hardship, then my hope must rest in, and then we fill in the blank with somebody not not Jesus. If you can acknowledge that in your heart, Hebrews 3, 1 through 6 is for yourself. You need to hear what is being said here this morning. That's why the author, the author knows this temptation in you, and he knows this temptation in me, so this is why he looks you dead square in the face and says, Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. I know you have a tendency in your heart to place your confidence and hope in a pseudo-savior. That pseudo-savior being husband, wife, parent, child, friend, neighbor, coworker, fiance, boyfriend, girlfriend, or any other person that you might think of. I know that that's the temptation of your heart. I know that you think that person will actually be able to save you and satisfy you more than the Savior, Jesus Christ. And here steps the author and says, if you do that and you begin to go down that path, you will begin to drift because that pseudo-savior is truly pseudo. It's false. They will not be able to save you. They might be able to save you for a little bit, but there will be no true superior faithfulness exhibited in that pseudo-savior. What you need is him who is the final yes and amen to all things. Him who is superior in his faithfulness. Him who is worthy to be considered. For in considering Jesus, guess what we're called to do and drawn to do? Considering Jesus, we are drawn over and over and over again. To remember that our confidence and hope is built upon Jesus, the faithful son. And it's to rest in him and him alone. Some of us are going to walk out this door today, friends. And we're going to be tempted to go, Jesus, person, yeah. And backfill that space and draw the conclusion that if I rest my confidence and hope in person X or in thing X, this will save and satisfy me. And the author says, don't go that path. That is a surefire first step towards drifting. Fight 
to consider Jesus as superior so that as you go out and you're buffeted and you're hit and you're battered and you're thrown left and right by the just trials and travails of life, let those trials and travails of life smack you against the faithful rock, the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it was Spurgeon. If you never know who gives out a quote, just always attribute it to Spurgeon, right? I think it was Spurgeon who said this. I've learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of Christ. Do you see what he's saying there? You are going to be smacked by the unrelenting waves of, Christ, or of, of life this week. And you can either be like, life, or you can just learn to, interesting phrase, kiss those waves that just keep smacking you against the rock of Christ. Suffering has a way of either nudging us to say, forget you, Jesus, or suffering can have a way to make us go, bear hug and consider Jesus. And my encouragement is that that latter is what the author is encouraging us to do. Don't try to buckle up and do it in your own strength. Recognize you need the very strength of the Jesus that you're being called to consider to do this, okay? I love you, saints. Let's pray. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but holy trust in Jesus' name. Lord, let this be our prayer. I'm pretty sure we're going to be singing that truth here in a moment. Holy Spirit, work in us so that these realities will be manifested and evidenced in our life, not because we're bootstrapping this thing, but because of the power of Christ in us. Lord, do this for your name and for your glory here in Springfield and beyond. Holy Spirit, stir us and draw us and empower us to consider Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Amen.